You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And we're talking about some animal stuff today. <laughs> yes, animal stuff. And uh, I'm going to preface by saying, if I don't know if you can tell that my voice sounds a little bit different, but I've been talking a lot and uh, I was talking a lot last night and I kind of used up my voice. So it's a little scratchy. Um, I hope it sounds okay. And I apologize if it's grating on the ears. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. I yeah. think it's all right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So... We put out a request to some of the people who um, are fans of the show, we think, and uh, and asked them what they wanted to hear when we were talking about animal research. And man, did we get more replies than I have ever seen about anything that we've asked about. So uh, thanks for everyone who wrote in. Yeah, there is a ton on there. So we decided we're going to handle this in two ways, I guess. We're yeah. going to tackle certain topics today, but then we've shelved some other topics for later that we think just need a whole episode around them. Precisely, yeah. So some people specifically wanted to know about kind of what's going on in animal research. Some people wanted to hear about implication, like certain topics that one that we'll get into with um, animal language and then various elements of like what animals are capable of. Yeah. So we kind of have tentative titles around animal-assisted therapy ethics when it comes to animal research and then uh, kind of chimpanzees and language. Those will obviously change, but... Yeah, so, but we're... Well, uh, let me let me get into sort of what... Wh- I want to set this up appropriately, okay? So essentially when we're talking about we're doing research of any kind in any field, really, the field can generally be divided in kind of two camps of research. They have what is called experimental or basic research, also sometimes called pure research, and then you've got applied research. Okay, and there's another third category called translational. I'll get into in a second. Now, basic research, and again, some people call this pure or fundamental or experimental, whatever it is. This is specifically designed, for the most part, to sort of like pursue curiosity. It's it's intended to test theories, to improve understanding. This is this is the kind of research that's what can we learn about the universe around us? Yeah, right. And um, this typically takes place in really tightly controlled laboratory settings, um, or it is it, it is done uh, on like a, a model on a computer. Um, and it's specifically trying to like rule out all things that are not that that could be affecting what you're curious about, um, but you you don't you don't want to know about those. So let's say for example, I want to know about um, the biology of a particular animal. Um, if I try and go out and find it in the wilderness and observe it in the wilderness where it would normally resides, it would be really difficult to find and to perform those experiments. What I really and like, what if it, the temperature has something to do with it? What if the microbes that are in the environment around it have something to do with it? All of these things I would have to consider when I'm trying to understand the biology. So, if from a basic standpoint, I just want to look at this one little thing, I'm going to try and put this in a laboratory setting where. I don't have to worry. Like I can control the temperature. I can control the microbial life or lack thereof around <laughs> it. Like I can isolate everything away from it and focus just on the one thing. Almost too much, right? <laughs> it could it could be too much. Yeah, I focus on that one thing. So anyway, that's sort of this basic camp of research is when research is done in those tightly controlled laboratory settings. Now, 
we're obviously a psychology podcast, so really we're going to be talking for the most part about psychology research today. But another thing to consider as we're going through this is that it doesn't necessarily have to be animal or human, although it usually is. But because it's a psychology podcast, we're usually looking at the animal-human differences in, in, in research. And basic research, even this pure, fundamental, experimental, what have you, that can be done with both animals and humans. Just because it's animals doesn't mean that it's basic. And just because it's humans doesn't mean that it's the applied version, right? Yes. All right. And also, as I mentioned, it can be totally conceptual as with mathematical models and computer simulations and that sort of thing. Correct. All right. So now often, probably most often, um, it's conducted with animals. And uh, for example, if you want to um, sequence the genes of rodents and you want to look at all of the gen genetic makeup of particular types of rodents. This is a lot easier to do when... In, in many practical and ethical ways, correct? Yeah, With absolutely. animals. Yes. And we'll get into some of the considerations around like why one would want to do um, do this with animals as opposed to humans and what so that sort of the arguments are there. But yes, that's, that's an example in which the basic research is, is likely to, to occur. Another one that would be a question that is like this basic research is just asking the question, how often will a pigeon peck at a key for food? Right. Yep. And so that one, it's like that doesn't necessarily have any implications for we're not trying to learn about this so that we can cure Alzheimer's or anything like that. It's just we want to know what happens when we give an animal food for doing something. Right. That would be that's sort of an example about how this might look. OK. Now, this is different from applied research. As I mentioned, those two that are sort of basic camps. Yeah. So these are much more aimed at creating or developing some sort of technology or technique that can help a really, ideally, like an important social situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and specifically that it can be applied, hence the name applied, it can be applied to those real-life situations. Um, and this is often geared toward solving problems and improving circumstances. It's not pursued out of just curiosity, like almost by definition. Um, it really is the as you said, the, the, te the techniques and technology and then um, improving circumstances for things. Yes. Okay? And now this is almost always humans. But again, like just because it's humans doesn't mean it's applied. And just because it's animals doesn't mean it's that basic research. You can have animals involved in applied research. Yes. So uh, I think oftentimes we have research around maybe when it comes to like best practices for me like border police or policing practices with dogs that oh, would sure. probably fall there yeah absolutely yeah training animals research and training animals to be uh, service animals yep. right or how how animals can be assist humans and then there are also is uh, applied research in um, understanding animals to help animals as well which yep. i'll get into a little bit later there's also the animal assisted therapies like we were talking about chunking that off is another one as right. well as we've talked in the past about the hero rats right yeah absolutely they were so these these rats uh, obviously work in tandem with humans and they are trained to identify landmines or tuberculosis. Um, and we talked about it in a previous episode. I think it was episode 14. Behavioral technologies. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to kind of dive into that a little bit more, that's that's there. And, and another one I think that is often and usually considered applied is when testing drugs out on animals. And this is again, this is. This is one of the first steps in understanding the pharma pharmacology of how drugs are going to work on humans. They usually, almost always, start with testing on animals. 
Um, another one is that's applied research, and this is actually with humans, is things like techniques for teaching something like toilet training. Yeah. And I mean, we well, could go on and on. There is education research would fit into applied. And even looking at things like training for on the job, training for safety, training for military, training anything you can yeah. think of <laughs> where you are in the service of, of doing research to improve the circumstances for people. That's the that sort of applied camp. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so... All right, that's our first two. So the basic, the applied, and then we have the one that's kind of in between, right? Translational. Right, yeah. And so translational, I mean, it, it is kind of what it sounds like. And as we said, sort of the in between. It's when you are testing those findings from the, the basic research, the stuff where you were just looking at things for curiosity to learn how things work. You might do that in those conditions where it's tightly controlled laboratory conditions and then use your findings from that to look at the clinical applications or implications of the of that research. Okay, And that's what's called translational. So it is trying to bridge that gap from the things that are done in those tightly controlled laboratory settings to those less tightly controlled but more, I guess, socially interesting applied settings, right? Yes. Okay, so today what we're really talking about, so that's just giving you the setup of what the types of research currently are and how it's sort of done if you look at it in those camps. And so today what we wanted to ask the question is what can we learn from research with animals? We're talking about psychology. Is this something that applies to humans? I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask. Yeah. But um, we want to know the extent to which we can learn about psychological phenomenon um, from animal research. And there's a lot of considerations around that. Yeah. So like we said, there's a lot of areas to jump into. Let's just get into, I think, the first main topic, which is this idea of continuity of species. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one thing to be that people have brought up in terms of understanding how one can do research with animals and interpret that in some meaningful way to develop principles of psychology is to is the idea that well if it's it's an assumption right it's the assumption that if we are an evolved species that we all share an evolutionary past yes so it makes sense that all of the animals that are that are around us that we could be doing research on we um, those processes are the same because we came from the same place. Yes. Yeah, so that might be like we have certain physical similarities or chemical similarities, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we all, all um, mammals, for example, have similar organ structures. All animals that we've seen that uh, generally are called animals have brains with some exceptions. So there's there's a lot of overlap in how we're physically set up is yeah. one thing. But and there's also differences. Like, uh, So I guess we can all be... Ref responding to similar uh, cues in the environment, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, we could be responding. And then there also might be species that are more sensitive to some cues that like human beings wouldn't be able to respond to. Yeah. So we all have a different developmental history and context we're kind of in as well. And then the last one here is like the, they call it morphology, right? So yeah. the, the way in which we're structured. It's like uh, we have opposable thumbs and that is a very different setup than say dogs or any animal that doesn't have opposable thumbs right yeah so morphology meaning basically the the physical shape of the organism um so for example things that have wings well they can use those wings to learn to fly if their body's set up in such a way because there are plenty of birds that have wings that they they can't fly because their body just won't let them you know um and there are uh but like we can't, we don't have the morphology to allow us to learn how to fly. We don't have that. That's why we create uh, wingsuits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so there are 
those morphological features, those really limit and create the context in which certain types of features can evolve in that species. Um, for example, uh, swimming is a trait for aquatic animals that they can get more, they can get faster at swimming, they can get um, more adept at uh, turning and evading predators and that sort of thing, or you know, at going after prey. But the that swimming ability, there are not features in the environment that are going to allow them to learn how to walk on land. Yeah, yeah. Except for those, you know, there are obviously aquatic animals that can are both land and aquatic, but. I'm talking about one that evolved purely in a water environment. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the circumstances just aren't there. The morphology can't capitalize on the circumstances that would allow that to be the case. And so that is one of the considerations around how related species are and what they're capable of doing. And therefore, what we can extrapolate from those, that species as being similar or different from this, another species we're interested in, in this case, probably humans. Okay. So is there anything that, uh, I guess, historical that we want to kind of quote reference here? when it comes to this continuity of species idea. Yeah, absolutely. So um, specifically, we're looking at um, looking at the behavioral view. Skinner, uh, B.F. Skinner had a really good quote on this. He said, quote, We can neither assert nor deny discontinuity between the human and the subhuman fields so long as we know so little about either, end quote. And, you know, he's basically making the case that we can't necessarily say that humans are close enough to animals for that to be the case or that we're, um, we're so different from animals that it can't be the case. It, we just don't know. We, we can look at, even with evolution, the fact that we evolve from the same place and doesn't mean that we'll be able to extrapolate the same amount of information. And it is, it is, it does not inconsistent with evolutionary theory to look at two different species and believe that they are not analogous to one another enough that you can always extrapolate the same information from one to the next. Like I might learn very little about lung capacity of chimpanzees by studying a fish. Yeah. You know, their, their biology is set up in such a different way. Um, but I might learn a lot in terms of the overall process of their uh, lungs working um, yep. by studying one of them. I just wouldn't know about that, you know, that specific um, analogy of one to the other. But that's an important uh, distinction to make here is that sort of assumption of continuity is whether that is something that we can use in doing the animal research. And as we'll see, there are some people who think slightly more and or less of that. <laughs> All right. So one thing that came up in some of the listener requests, but is also relevant to this somewhat, um, is ape language primate research and such. And so one of the famous uh studies and I guess just chimps in general was Washoe, which was actually originated and started. That was the name of the chimpanzee um, in Reno, Nevada, named for Washoe County. We're actually recording this podcast. Yeah. So, you know, what a coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like we said, we want to separate that for another one. There's just so much history and other things that come into that one, right? Yeah. And I mean, as a brief history, as, as, uh, as Ryan said, that um, there was an attempt to teach sign language communication, which actually has been something people have attempted to teach language to other animals for you know, over 100 years. But um, in the 60s specifically, there was this attempt to teach language using sign language with 
primates, basically. Um, and a lot of other people have tried to do this, but um, again, this would be a topic better saved for an entire episode because there was a lot of discussion to happen around what they found and some of the implications and some of the controversy and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, if you want a good like overview, Wikipedia is a decent start. It's not perfect. Yeah. And we will unpack that later. And I actually, um, I, I put a link here in the notes for um, an article on that we'll, that we'll be using when we do our main show on that as well. Cool. We'll link that in the notes. All right. So I had the opportunity when I was in Japan about two years ago to check out uh, the Primate Research Institute in Kyoto University. And it was it was pretty awesome. I'll link to their site. Uh, it was it was one of those things that was very informative, but in no way did I get to actually dive into any sort of depth of what was going on. Okay. Um, and I was with a group of people touring there for a conference. And largely the group, majority of everybody there was interested in uh, what type of research they were doing and like how they had set it up and arranged. And I mean, this place was uh, massive. I think there was, um, I'm guessing probably 40, 40 or so chimps that could like freely opt in to come in and like do this sort of research. Wow. And imagine just giant Skinner type boxes that they could opt in and go in. No one was forced to do that sort of stuff, but there was still uh, a percentage of that group that was there kind of skeptical and like, how are these things being ran? What are the ethics around it all? So was it basically like behavioral research or was it medical research? It was behavioral research, largely wow. psychology research. Um, and I think it's still one of the largest. I'm not quite sure there. And they had a famous chimp that we can dive into when it comes to the chimp and language cool. episode. Awesome. All right. So one of the considerations that we're going to get into in terms of whether or not, you know, what we can learn from animal research and whether or not that's going to contribute meaningfully to our understanding of psychology as it relates to humans and other animals is um, there are a lot of people who have made the case against animal research for a lot of reasons. But one of the major considerations that has arisen out of the ethical questions is um, whether we're talking about animal welfare or animal rights. And um, those people who are on the side of animal welfare are not necessarily opposed to the use of animals for research purposes. But and honestly, at this point, I think the majority of the scientific community is on board with this idea that there's sort of these three R's and there's refinement, reduction and replacement. OK. And specifically, that is the use of animals is uh, relevant when we are refining techniques that exist, but we want to make them better. Um, uh, we're trying to reduce the number of animals being used, so we're basically just being more efficient, and that we're trying to replace the use of animals with other methods that are accomplishing the same thing but don't require the use of animals to do that line of research. So that's they're sort of saying, like, yes, we can do animal research, and let's have these things in mind, right? Cool. All right. And just as if you guys were curious, the most commonly used animals in psychological research, according to the American Psychological Association, like 90 to 95 percent of animals used in most psychological research are uh, mice and rodents. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. As you can well imagine. Interestingly, although the term like, be a guinea pig is a thing um, and guinea pigs are rodents. The pigeons also fall under this category, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the most common one or most common animals used are the mice, rodents and pigeons um they make up as i said 90 to 95 percent of animals that are used um, about five percent is uh primates so now we're pushing up to that 95 to 100 percent territory 
Um, and then the rest of that is other animals, which a lot of those are cats and dogs. And then there's birds, orcas, horses, cows, all kinds of things that people have used uh, to do research. And there are lots of reasons why they might be used, but the most common use for psychological research is, is mice and rodents. Okay, so let's go ahead and, and get into like the people who make the arguments for using animals to do psychological research, with which also includes the discussion of what is believed that can be learned about animals from psychological research. And the way I'm going to formulate my discussion here is to talk about the overall considerations as well as just a whole list of like pros of like these are the things that are beneficial from this, right? Cool. All right. So the people who are in favor of using animals for research argue, um, and this is not necessarily psychological, but in the biological research and medical research, um, even doing that like basic animal research where you're just pursuing curiosity and tightly contro controlled studies has led to accidental discoveries that have been really useful in, um, in developing medical treatments for people. Do we have any of those? Okay, so um, one particular line of research that looked at this basic research with animals was they uh, a couple of researchers, they were interested in, in studying digestion in dogs. And uh, they were looking at the pancreas and they were uh, noticing that the levels of sugar um, in their body um, had changed as a function or of the urine, something like that. Um, but uh, later what had happened is in the early 1900s, uh, in uh, more of this pancreatic extract, they accidentally discovered the hormone insulin which they uh, came to find, came obviously to discover uh, was instrumental in helping people uh, who were battling or um, suffering from diabetes. And so uh, like that's obviously a pretty significant discovery, accidental discovery. They weren't looking for insulin or cures for diabetes, but they were doing that basic research in animal digestion and happened to isolate this one hormone that ended up being instrumental in, in uh, this treatment. Yeah, nothing big, just a Nobel Prize, right? Yeah, nothing, nothing yeah, <laughs> not, not too, not, you know, just a little thing. Yeah, okay, so I mean, that's a, that's a really strong pro, right? That we might accidentally run into these sort of uh, fantastic discoveries that help people out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one is that, going back to that idea of continuity, is that all animals, for the most part, have the same common ancestry. And uh, therefore, there are these fundamental processes that have been universally demonstrated in all of these living creatures as a part of being alive on this planet. Like we have that shared evolutionary past. Yeah. So one big one was uh, Ivan Pavlov's uh, classical conditioning, right? Yep, absolutely. Like that's one that we have seen um, is consistent across all species. And then um, operant conditioning, which is essentially where organisms uh, learn and behave um, with respect to some kind of cue and then whatever the result or outcome is as the reaction to that cue. So just going back to the idea of the rat pressing a lever, that if there's a light and then the rat presses the lever and then it gets food, then the rat's more likely to press that lever when that light's on, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so that's essentially the sort of idea behind the operant conditioning, which again, demonstrated across several, several species and is generally one of those things we have found to be a part of the commonality across um, in, in that evolutionary um, common his, uh, ancestry. Yeah, I'll link to a crash course psychology video that's actually really solid on that. And then uh, the only thing else I would add is, I think it's something from like the Cretaceous period on or something like that, right? That oh, yeah. That demonstrates this sort of operant classical conditioning. Right. Yeah. Okay. Another argument in favor of uh, using animals in, in this sort of basic research and what we can learn from basic research is that animals provide a way to sort of safely evaluate psychological events before we apply those techniques to populations of humans that might be vulnerable and might be likely to suffer from those same type of techniques. As we'll see 
the inverse of this argument is sort of used for people who are opposed to this type of research. But this is one that those who are in fa really strongly in favor of, like we're prioritizing the um, experience of, of human beings as a species, um, and that this is one way to get at that priority. Um, another one is just looking at that sort of cost benefit evaluation of, you know, what does it cost to do this type of research and what is the outcome of that? And that there is an overall um, benefit to doing the basic research um, when you just look at dollars put into it and then the outcomes that can come out of that research um, and how that can be helpful in a lot of different settings. Um, another one is looking at those processes that end up facilitating changing animal behavior in such a way that that can eventually be beneficial to humans, as we mentioned before, things like um, training police dogs and other um, animals that provide assistance, CNI dogs, that sort of thing, or visual aid dogs. I'm not sure what the PC term for that is now. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. But anyway, so those dogs. Another one is that, you know, humans uh, are also used as test subjects in these situations. And we've been shown to be kind of in a better spot to solve problems, right? Yeah. But it's also brought up a whole slew of ethical issues. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that uh, we have, you know, and looking at whether we look at just using animals or using humans, well, we have used humans. And it's, you know, humans are better at solving certain problems, but we also can solve the some of the problems of the research paradigm uh, by looking at animals. And that, uh, that human research had to stop for ethical issues. And so also one would make the argument that, the ethical issues do not change because they're not humans that are being involved in that. Yeah. But again, I'm trying to stay on the, like, what are the, the people saying who are in favor of this? Yep. Um, another one is that um, when those humans have, well, and this is actually related to the previous one, is that when humans have been those test subjects and they were the ones who end up being sort of the sacrificial lamb um, for basic research, that did lead to that significant improvement. So basically the argument being made here is that at the level of basic, tightly controlled experimental research, huge implications for knowledge and application can arise out of that even when it's not initially the intention. Basically saying that there are there is value that comes out of these basic research paradigms that is seen regardless of the attention of those paradigms or the uh, people who are involved in them. And that, yes, it's unfortunate that things end up being sacrificed in the name of curiosity and that there also are these benefits that come out of that in terms of understanding a lot more about these processes and helping people and in, in many cases helping the animals. So let's just list right, like right into our pros. Like why do people like doing animal research? One that people argue is that animal testing has led to invaluable cures that have helped improve human life. Another is that uh, when doing testing, because uh, one makes the argument of like testing on cells, for example, that doing testing on the whole body is important. So testing on an entire intact living organism is important for doing the research and that there's nothing that is as good as that that's available as a replacement for that type of research. So that's why testing on animals is necessary as opposed to doing testing on something that's not a whole animal like a cell or testing on something that is uh, a computer simulation. Yeah, exactly. And I ran into that a couple different times. And another one is animals are genetically and evolutionarily similar to humans. Which is one that we've mentioned before. Animal testing prevents unnecessary harm to humans. And animals can benefit from participating in testing. In some cases, animals can benefit from participating in, in that testing and in that research. Although I think you could argue, you could make the argument then so could the humans if they were to be those participants in research. So like, yes, the research could be beneficial for them and not necessarily harmful. Yeah. And then that's, that brings up the other point of like existing regulations uh, prevent mistreatment of animals or, or in place to try to promote the ethical treatment of animals. 
Right. Um, which goes, we'll get into an argument of like one of the reasons people don't like doing the basic research is, be, is for animal ethical reasons. Um, another one is that when doing that basic research, animal genetic histories can be more carefully controlled, which allows for better controlled experiments. So, for example, um, mice and rats only live a few years, so you can really control what their genetic lineage is across several generations across the line of research so that you're not seeing variations in their data that are based on at least to some extent differences in their genetic mutations or genetic makeup you can really closely follow that line and see that things will should not change because you've controlled for that variable yeah and on that same note like their shorter life cycles also allow for more of the like quote long-term effects to be seen and like repeatedly seen over time too yeah absolutely so you get like a lot of repeated exposure to just more data basically um another one that is brought up as a pro is that relatively few animals can be used to do this research and that can lead to these like significant advances in applied research later down the road so it's like even when you only have you know, a handful of animals that are used for a research study that might end up benefiting hundreds of thousands of people later yeah. on. It brings us back to like that cost benefit analysis. Yeah, exactly. There's also no pro, another pro that's uh, mentioned, which could be that they could be used to monitor and develop strategies for protecting endangered species. This to me is like, this is a huge one, like a, a reason for doing the, the basic research is that some people will do research on animals where they're simply pursuing it out of curiosity. And in doing so, they develop uh, techniques, strategies, and um, policy recommendations about like, we were just doing this research and now we also know that this is one thing that could be affecting the species. So now we can take efforts to conserving the species where we were doing something that was harming the species beforehand like to me that's a huge pro like that's a great thing that the it ends up being so much in service of improving um the outcome of that species that uh it it almost looks like an applied study at that point even though the original intention was just to learn more about that species uh, mating rituals is actually a really common one because you'll see that animals when they have particular mating rituals that might be restricted to a particular area and then one I actually read about relatively recently, something like just putting power lines across the area uh, really disrupted what their mating rituals were. And so the population dwindled as an outcome of their yeah. main power lines there. And so like, that's just, you know, one thing. Now there are three more things that are listed as pros, but to me, I wasn't really sure. These sounded a little weird. Like they, they weren't really yeah. pros to me. Yeah. They sound a little crazy. Yeah. So like one of the things that was listed and I, I have a, I put a link in the show notes uh, to this specific pros and cons list that I found. But one thing that was listed as a pro for doing animal research and is that's that, using air quotes. Yeah. Using Let's air quotes there. A pro um, is that animals don't have rights. I was like, that doesn't seem like a thing or a pro. Yeah, and it, <laughs> so that's just weird. Yeah, that's a weird thing to say. Is it's like, hard to swallow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that if you went back far enough in time, that someone would have said like, well, people with intellectual disabilities, they don't have rights, so they're good as test subjects. Yeah, and really, that's just like which it's completely inappropriate. And that's, I mean, that's me drawing that parallel between those two things. But just to sort of take it out to like, like, why are you? Why are you saying they don't have rights? You know, it, it seems like that's just a, a leap that is missing in the logic there. Yes. So another one was humans are motivated to treat them well for this experimental soundness. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea behind this whole that, that that argument is that like they want their research to be done well. So they will treat the animals well so they can do the research well. Well, that could be the case sometimes, but I'm not sure if that's like that's just, you're just speculating at that point that that would likely be the case. We yeah. don't really know. Yeah, yeah. And Come I'm not on. saying that people are mistreating their animals. I'm just saying that because 
you're saying that that might have their uh, research being outcome. Like we, those are a bunch of assumptions. We don't really know. Yes, correct. And there's one last one. Yeah. And so this one, this is funny because it's literally showed up on both the pros and cons list, but there are religious traditions that uh, place greater importance on human life and specifically referring to humans as having dominion over the animals. And then that is a pro to doing animal research. My biggest question about this as a pro is like, what does it have to do with animal research? Yeah. <laughs> just because they have dominion. I guess they're just saying like, it's okay to do this because they have dominion. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. Right. Not, I'm, but that's different from saying like, this is a good thing is that this is an acceptable thing. All right. So that's everything that's for, or I guess the pros of doing animal research. Yep. Let's look at the complete opposite side now and those that are against it. What's yeah. kind of the premise here? All right. Well, I think the important caveat to begin with here is that they're against it in terms of what can be learned about animal research with respect to human psychology for a lot of these. But there are, are others that are in that sort of ethical camp or what's the point of doing eth animal research on anything. Uh, but, but we'll get there. Now, one of the premises that people have in their argument against using animals for research, especially in understanding complex psychological phenomenon, is that there is an implicit assumption about animals and their psychology that when you are trying to extrapolate from one species to another, you are assuming that they are reasonably analogous or reasonably close to one another, that if you do that research, you will then be able to extract the meaningful information from that species because they're close enough. That is kind of a big assumption to make. Like, And there might be reasons to make that assumption, but that is that is one big assumption that is made in saying that you can learn something about the psychology of one organism by looking at the psychology of another. Now, there was that statement earlier about the continuity and how we come from the same evolutionary background. Yeah. But it is important to like at least consider that those might be differences there. And I think that where the, the argument I was reading about this specifically is referring to is that there are certain experiences that are human in nature that are are unlikely to be available even in an analogy inside of like sort of a basic research paradigm using non-human subjects like animals right I, and again this comes to the fact that there are another element of trying to do this research is that you are approaching this that there are similar commonalities between the subjects being studied and or the problem in the subjects being studied and the problem in the humans that that is meant to be applied to. OK, or at least that the relevant features are the same and that they're not obscured by other th variables that you aren't accounting for. Yes, yeah, so they can't be missing these like really significant features. Exactly right. It's the primary thing. And so they give the example quite a bit of things like let's say you wanted to understand depression in humans. Well, can you reasonably assume that you can create the conditions of depression in another animal such that if you study that in a basic research setting, you will understand something about depression in humans? And they're sort of making the case. We don't think so. And yeah. they were sort of saying that the reason being that the the causes and the variables that are significant for understanding depressions in humans are not the same as they are in understanding depressions in animals. And especially because of how those um, can arise for humans that are not out of that they are inherently linked to the language, which I'll get to in a moment. Yeah, I've most certainly had those thoughts when I'm reading different research and yeah. things that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this, uh, the, the, on that same argument, they're, they're basically saying that the same factors responsible for the human's behavior 
in the, for let's again, going to the idea of depression or schizophrenia or any psychological problem that you're interested in, that those uh, factors that might be responsible for their experience of the problem that they're having must also then be present for the animal in order for you to study the animal and have that be a reasonable analog in place of that person. Yeah, that's a pretty good segue into like what I think is one of our biggest points we wanted to talk on later, which is it depends on the type of questions being asked. Yeah, ex- exactly. And so, um, if the question that you're asking is you are investigating a languaging process, then that becomes extremely difficult because we have no evidence of language in other species that at least mimics the language of humans. It's it's no but no species has ever demonstrated in any kind of controlled setting the kind of language that that humans use to communicate with one another. Yeah. Um, however, if the question that you're asking has to do with totally non-languaging. Um, elements of their psychology, such as uh, going back to Pavlovian conditioning. Those things are those uh, do not appear to be unique to humans at all. As a matter of fact, that was discovered originally in animals, and then it was also shown in humans. Um, and so those non-languaging processes, um, those questions can be asked so that they are relatively similar to one another. Another one is looking at, so there's this question of what is called um, functional versus topographical. And that basically means how it works versus how it looks. Yep. Okay. And what can, what is often the argument that there was being made here is that what looks, what human behavior looks like in one setting, they will make it look the same way in a basic research setting, but it isn't working the same way. Yeah. There's like the, the way that it arrives for that animal, the way that it's set up, it's not functionally the same for the human's experience of that thing. So just because they look the same doesn't mean they actually work the same. Yeah. Yeah. And we've learned that understanding how things work provides a very, or is a very crucial part of of being effective in psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding the working process allows you to develop an effective way of dealing with that process because things can look different or look the same and work completely differently or work work exactly the same but look completely differently. Yeah, so another another con here, I guess it's maybe related, is when you bring these things into the research laboratory, um, they can very, very quickly get much more elaborate over time when you're talking about just the complexity and the sequence of like certain procedures or the fact that they're like a living. So you originally set it up, right? And they're, they're also a living organism that have their own histories that are developing, right? Exactly. So you might try to set up the perfect same system as what you want to study in humans. But as soon as you kind of start it from there, it just kind of quickly, uh, unravels. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it develops in such a way that like, you, you can't actually put behavior in a laboratory setting and approach it as if it does not evolve and change and learn and become a different type of behavior such yeah. that even when you study it in those tightly controlled settings, it might not be the same type of phenomenon by the time you're done measuring it as it then would have been for the human being who their behavior also is changing and evolving and, ala- and is becoming increasingly more elaborate in the context in which they're developing. Yep. And that's something I've seen in research and I believe, uh, I guess, personally hold as something that does happen. So right. I, I, I can relate to where they're coming from. And so to that end, the the, um, the same argument in the, the article I was reading for this, which I linked to in the show notes, um, I think it was Hayes and Delgado. Um, they're basically saying that given all of these considerations, basically what you have to when if you want to do this psychological research, you have to be able to identify the fact that the um, the responses and the behavior and the learning is going to evolve. At the same time, um, there are going to be multiple 
factors that are uh, contributing to that evolution and that that changes in response to the um, the stimuli and the context of the environment in real time and that those patterns and those events must be manipulated as the occurrence goes on so that you can make that or as your observation is going on so that you can actually make that a reasonable comparison to the psychological event you're interested in. And they say, quote, this is a tall order. And yeah. <laughs> just to say, like, that's so many things to try and consider and control in your study that it is unlikely to be successfully pulled off. Yeah. And it's, it relates to this point, too, of like the basic level of animals cannot account for the richness or complexity, which is also talked about like in humans and the experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's essentially the um, the critique that is thrown at the idea of using basic research that has developed huge fields of investigation that are applied in nature, but were founded on that basic research. So if we were to list some of these cons, just like back and forth. Yeah. The first one uh, is it's inhumane. Yeah, a lot of people make the argument for that um, that well-being and ethical standpoint or the animal rights standpoint that putting animals in these situations where they often, usually, and then in the past, they don't choose to be involved in that research. They it often can require them being put to death or enduring starvation, electric shock. Um, you know, it's just sort of animals roaming around, gets picked up, thrown in a cage, is then shocked to death and then thrown in a dumpster somewhere. It's sort of like, well, that kind of sucks for that animal, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the arguments against using them is that this treatment can end up being inhumane. Another one is that there are replacements that are available and this is where it becomes sort of a matter of opinion. Um, maybe there's some actual research on this, but where they say it's just as good as um, the animals. So uh, people will do these um, bacterial cultures and other like Petri dish cultures. Yeah, they're simulating to some extent. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that those don't require animals in order to be tested on so they can do it. Um, and one thing that's been happening is they've been able to start growing organs in labs. Uh, they have computer simulations that they can run things through. There's uh, what's called microdosing, where you do just small amounts of drugs that you're interested in rather than enough to kill the animal. There's a thing called the LD50. Yeah. Uh, you ever heard of that one? Yeah, so it's the lethal dose, and it is essentially the amount that it takes to kill 50% in the sample size, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so, crazy, but yeah, it's the, extremely informative. It is, um, but that was one thing. So they were but, making the argument, like, maybe do the microdosing instead of, like, deliberately yeah. killing half of the species yeah, yeah. that you're interested in. Um, and so, yeah, those are some things where they're making the argument here that those are just as good of a replacement. I, other people are saying that they're not as good of a replacement, and I don't know. Uh, that seems to be sort of a matter of opinion. Um, and possibly there's some data to back up that there are limitations to doing the replacement version. Yes, really, really related to the next one I have, which is animals aren't uh, accurately representing humans like we talked about. Yeah, exactly. And that's just looking at, although there is this continuity assumption, is how well, and it depends on the question you're asking, but how well does that basic research thing actually imitate the question that you're uh, trying to investigate? Mm -hmm. um, another one that has happened is that drugs... Just going to the, the medical testing, I, you know, I, I wanted to stick to psychology, but this was important. I thought there are drugs that are conducted in animal studies, and that's that basic research thing, that they will pass um, the, the phase of testing on animals. Yep. But because animals and for that particular drug are not close enough to humans, what ends up happening is that drug is not actually safe for humans. And then some people get 
you know, violently ill or have side effects or even can die yeah. um, from that drug. But another thing that's happened has been completely uh, the reverse of that is some drugs that have not passed the animal test because they were harmful to animals would, were actually and could be life-saving to humans. Be- mm-hmm. Again, because our biology is set up somewhat, somewhat differently yeah. um, and we, uh, we process chemicals in somewhat different ways depending, again, on the drug and the species and all that. Another con is that most species are not protected by regulations. And yeah. this is something that I didn't realize at first. And as I got more into psychology, I realized like, yeah, that's the total truth. Yeah. Um, we worked when I was a graduate student uh, with fish. And part of the reason I was told was that there's not as much regulation. So there was more wiggle room. Now there was still an ethical board and there's procedures to follow. But that was one of the statements that you heard quite often. Yeah, and I mean, one of the arguments previously being that there are regulations in place to protect mistreatment of animals, and that is true, but the vast majority of animals that could be available to research are actually not protected by that act. That's not to say that people are going to go out and intentionally do unethical research to those animals, but they might choose species that have less regulation because it's simply easier. Yeah, and what I realized is that also when there's less regulation, there's less cost typically as well. Yes, yes, which, yeah, which one of the things that then they point to is that when you are following these animal models that are most commonly used, and rodents, mice, and rats specifically are protected by the Animal Welfare Act, um, or whatever, I think it's called the Animal Welfare Act, but um, is that it ends up being, they're making the case here, and again, I don't know where they're getting their data from, but that it is then actually more expensive to try and do animal research, especially with, with those regulations in place, than it would be to try and do um, the alternative, like the bacterial testing and cultures, and then the computer simulations. Yeah, and I don't remember the exact numbers, you can look them around, and I'm sure this depends a lot on the research and the state and the country trend and such, um, but it there were some practices like with uh, pigeons that required certain medical checkups every so often by licensed professionals and whatnot. So I could see I could see where that can come from really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one that this was kind of interesting. There was a uh, meta a analysis that was conducted recently, I think in 2015. And uh, what they found was that some of the studies that they looked at had significant experimental flaws in like a huge proportion of the studies. So if they looked at like a thousand, there was one of them in particular that was like 80% of them didn't have, yeah, I mean, there's a huge percentage didn't have one type of experimental control that was sort of a basic, you always do this type of experimental control. But they looked at a whole bunch of different things that could be, could have been experimental flaws and found that, you know, some of them were really low proportions, some of them were really high, like the 80%. Um, and these were in um, in the journals that were reviewed by this, which were some of the major journals in that basic research. So important to look at, you know, we do that basic research, but if the research isn't being done very well, then all that was for naught, you know. Yeah. And again, that was that time and energy and resources put into uh, using those animals that then didn't like that wasn't and it being done as good research. Mm-hmm. Another another point made as a con quite often is that animals suffer the same way as humans do. Right. Um, and this whole idea that we've talked about of like we don't understand the thinking and feelings of others necessarily. Yeah. We can get, try to get close, but we really can never confirm nor deny that stuff. So yeah, uh, makes sense. Yeah. So you know, just looking at this in terms of like do the least amount of harm, and we need to understand this thing. So we're gonna say. We need to do the research in some capacity, but we want to try and minimize suffering as much as possible. But they're making the case here that if you simply were to put a, a, per, a human being in that place, that the same kind of suffering would be expected and that there none of it would be acceptable, sort of the argument that's being made. Another argument that's made is that 
even when there are regulations in place, um, that there can still be mistreatment of animals that occurs and either is undetected or is unreported or is um, for, you know, however it's being uh, carried out there, you know, there's that regulation in and of itself does not actually mean that mistreatment is not happening. Yeah. Um, going back to weirdly, this one that was presented as being uh, this is a con now where it was a pro and the uh, other one was that there is actually some religious tradition that recommends ethical treatment and consideration of animal well-being. So there is religion that says both, yeah, do whatever you want to animals and religion that says uh, treat animals well. So that can be confusing. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then one of our last ones, at least listed here, is that medical breakthroughs have been discovered without animals. And yeah, absolutely. That's quite true. Yeah. You know, some of the major medical discoveries happened that they may have been accidents as well. But, you know, looking at we're, when we're interested in humans and human biology, uh, that when we do that research with humans, that we find fantastic results that we then use with humans. And no, no animals were harmed in the making of this medical advancement. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the things that I ran into quite often is people were saying, like, well, why don't we use uh, certain cells like, you know, cell modeling or computer modeling of some sort? Um, and I understand that, but the common thing that I ran to also was the reply for those sort of arguments was we need to really understand the process first. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can sometime dive into that and see like how many of those things were just like stumbled across versus we understood the process and then we really discovered it elsewhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to sort of highlight your point that you can't make a computer model as a simulation if you don't know the process to plug into that model like it, it, you would have nothing there you have nothing to base it on so you there is doing sort of the groundwork with the the real live research um, arena if you will and then that can create the ability to simulate that in a computer setting um, and you know they do that with weather for example because you can't really put weather in an experimental chamber um, but they have collected so much data that they can simulate what weather patterns would look like based on how they sort of understand how it works. But um, just this idea of there, there are both pros and cons, and we'll sort of wrap up what those are. And we've talked about now the people who make the arguments for and against the use of animals in basic research um, and you know what we can learn from them. But let's go over a few of the applications of where animals have been used both in basic research and sort of for applied settings just because it's kind of fun and it was something people asked about. So one that, um, man, this is like brand new research. Uh, there are some like, there are little robots and what they do is they, uh, they did this in a pig and they put it in and it, it sort of slowly massaged the tissue, tissue of its esophagus and made its esophagus longer by promoting cell growth. And where they were interested in, now this is essentially basic research. It's in tightly controlled laboratory settings. They're doing this with animals to, you know, see the base sort of a proof of concept to see if it can be done. But part of the thinking around this is there are a lot of birth defects where people are born with these things where, um, they have, um, I, I remember exactly what it's called, but where their intestines are really short and where their esophagus is really short. And that's why they use the esophagus and the pig. Um, one of the reasons and what they could potentially do is they could give them this little, device that would actually help grow the tissue to the, the size that it needs to be to replace tissue that wasn't there when it should have been there. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's relatively non-invasive and the pig was able to, uh, eat and swallow and drink and basically have, while this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. While, while this was going on, like this was a live thing that they did with the pig. That's crazy. Yeah. And so that's one of the new applications of someone doing that basic research. Yeah. There's been applications of using, I guess in the past, 
they taught a lot of animals apparently in the military and there's some publications that are documented on this right yeah um how they can teach them to whether it's being carrier pigeons or going and identifying documents and like bringing them back right there's there's some pretty cool stuff um cool and it's very interesting in like the applications people are thinking of right Right. and and just the feats of ingenuity it took to train animals to accomplish those sorts of things yeah it's you know even if we don't necessarily if there are arguments against it, you can at least look at it and say that was impressive. You were able to pull that off. Yeah. And just like uh, this is a clear like I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard those things get extended now into like animals being taught to work with drones remotely in different cool. places and whatnot. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So that was one. We also mentioned the hero rats example. Yeah. So they're taught to smell out uh, using uh, scent as the primary thing and they reward with what is it? Bananas and. Uh, avocado avocado yeah like a little yeah. mix of it yeah um, but it's basic operant training to yeah. get them to be able to do this same things you worked for in grad school right yeah exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what got me get through it little little tube of paste that was avocado and um banana just right in the mouth yeah so yeah the project <laughs> the hero rats have uh been used as like a more cost-effective way to identify and a safer way to identify landmines and then also aid in identifying tuberculosis and it's pretty cool you can go up there and you can essentially donate some money and it allows you to have your own rat that you can uh claim as yours you get stats and updates on like what they're identifying and pretty cool pretty cool movement i know it's not perfect but I think they also tr- uh, use the same rats, although it may have been a different animal. But I believe they used similar rats to uh, locate people in collapsed buildings from like earthquakes and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So kind of cool. Where African pouched rats, I think, is what they are. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the same ones. Yeah. Huh. Uh, there is um, relatively recently going back to the biological stuff, using pigs to grow human organs, so that um, those organs could be get so like growing a heart, an extra heart inside of a pig, for example, that could then be put into a human. Um, this has been. Um, if any people have read, uh, I think it's Margaret Atwood's series, but I could be getting the name wrong. But it's um, there is like this dystopian future where they grow organs in pigs all the time. They call them pigoons. But um, yeah, this has been something that's been going on. As we mentioned earlier, the CNI dogs um, or whatever ass- assistance they provide. Uh, yeah, for so yeah, so that gets us in the large category of animal assisted therapies in right. general, right? Yeah. And there's there I don't even know what to list here. There's so many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we don't have to go, go into them. Yeah, we'll have to call. Uh, kind of curate a list for that yeah some other ways that animals have been used um and also sort of in basic research is the first uh animal ever in space was a monkey um mm-hmm. followed soon after by a dog so some cool ways yeah of look, looking at the biological effects of space i know they were also used in the original testing for the rockets before they started doing that sort of stuff too oh yeah there's a, a story out there i don't know if it's true or not but they were putting i think i read this online i don't think i'm making this up at all um <laughs> that they had placed a chimp in one of the rockets on the sled so you should shoot shoot these things across uh big dry empty lake beds okay with tracks and they shoot them across to test the rocket and then <laughs> they go they rec- <laughs> cover the chimp bring them back and then they put humans in right this whole progression of what you're supposed to do yeah quote unquote and they put the human in and he shoots down it stops so quick because they're using water traps yeah to actually stop them so the Essentially, the rails are placed where there's water over them. So when you hit the water, it starts to slow you down. Right. So there's no way to really break when they were doing all this. Yeah. Uh, it stopped so quick, his eyeballs popped out onto his cheeks. Oh, my gosh. They placed them back in. When it came to round two, it took uh, something like 12 or 14 people to get the chimp back in. And the human was just like, yeah, no problem. Let's go. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of talk around like, whoa, what are we doing here from some yeah. people? <laughs> the easier is to use the people. Yeah, right. 
that makes me think of when they depict spaceship spaceships in movies stopping from like light speed. I'm like yeah. your, your body's still going at light speed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just disintegrated. Yeah. But <laughs> or the electrons are separate from the neutrons that were once attached to you. <laughs> you hit the, the glass with such force. <laughs> like you, your body wasn't even vapor. It didn't make it that far. Yeah. Like plasma would have been an upgrade for what was left of you. <laughs> but yeah, that's um, funny to just think about that. Yeah, so the last one that I had personally was the Fish Lab. There's a couple of requests for this. I'm going to do that justice on another channel, um, YouTube channel I started up called The Daily BA. So find more details there at some point soon. But essentially, uh, I had mentioned, came into a place where at Florida Institute of Technology that had a research lab that was aimed at using goldfish. And part of this was the systems were in place there. They had already set up working with fish in that institute, it was easier in some senses with similar regulations and oversight. So the goal of the research was kind of going back to that operant conditioning that you described earlier was we were essentially looking at very basic um, understandings of how to work with operant conditioning. So imagine a tank uh, of a bunch of fish and it's our housing tank, everything's monitored, controlled for, like if temperature drops below a certain degree, that's not supposed to be where it's at. Like there's email monitors. There's a lot of things in place to kind of watch what, what's going on um, and attention put towards it. And that was actually part of my responsibility there. But then a separate tank where you essentially, very similar to a Skinner box um, idea, that that tank was set up, imagine about 20, 30 gallons, and there was a hoop placed in that they could swim through and it was an infrared sensor. Now, one thing that I learned is fish can see infrared, at least the goldfish that we were working with. And so, although we can't see it, when you turn it on, um, it looks like a wall to them, or at least is my understanding of it. I don't really know what it looks like to them, right? Yeah. Um, but so what we did is we learned how to shape and teach them to swim through those hoops. When you, they're taught how to swim through the hoops, you can automate it with a computer program. And I could look at basic uh, reward schedules, essentially. And so I used it for those routes. There was at least one thesis that was done while I was there. Um, looking at a basic biopharmacological like research study. And so they're looking at the effect of caffeines in goldfish, which interestingly had the opposite effect that it has in humans, um, which was the finding of that. And that was, I guess, the extent of it. I got a lot more details I'll show elsewhere. But Well, one thing is, did you find that it was valuable to do that kind of research just to like understand more about psychological processes? Yes, I would say it was extremely valuable for me learning how to work in an applied setting. Now, like, is there a formal line of research that shows that that is valuable and useful? I would say I haven't come across it yet, but there's a lot of people that were extremely well trained that had that experience. And so there's definitely a strong correlation there, which we've talked on this, like we need that research and we need to figure out what that is. So, so that one of the things that can be added to that list of reasons to do uh, what we can learn from basic animal research is we can learn actually good clinical skills because you start to see and you at experiencing the learning of an organism where that learning is like so straightforward and uncomplicated by things that are inherent to sort of how humans behave. Yeah. Um, so the idea of offering conditioning is that like you can set up uh, a certain reward and then you can work on rewarding successive approximations to an end goal. So you can take these smaller steps, right? And so that was something that we did largely in there. And I would argue that that helped me a lot because I can't talk to, I can't prompt, I can't touch the fish, right? Yeah. I have to just use the little flakes that we had for rewards and that was it. And if I wasn't careful, if I drop that flake, there's this thing water that we're not used to interacting with and living with yeah. in our own, you know, human world. And 
it would actually alter what you rewarded sometimes. So it was sure. a very different situation. I can see how it brings over, but it doesn't perfectly bring over into application either. And largely one thing that I learned that I've had to develop that I didn't learn there was how to work with language. All right. Awesome. Um, well, cool. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. We've been at it, been at it for a while. Um, so some of the, the major take homes, I think, of this discussion is that asking the question, what can we learn from animal research? Well, if the ex specific question you're asking is, what can we learn about animals from animal research? Then the answer is all of it. We can learn all of the information about animals mm -hmm. and animal research. Like that's a great way to go. We can learn everything. However, if the question is, what can we learn about humans from animal research? Well, then it's a little more complicated because it's, are we talking about a languaging thing? Are we talking about a non-languaging thing? How similar is the animal to the person? How analogous is the problem in the person that we can create that same context for the animal and be reasonably sure that that context matches the one that the person's experiencing? Yeah. Like those are, there's a lot of things to ask about that. So basically the overall summary there is that, you know, both human and animal research has provided some extremely valuable scientific progress um, in terms of discoveries and cures and treatments and other just general accumulation of knowledge that's been, been very helpful. Um, and there's just some really important considerations, right? So that it depends in part when you're doing research on the question that's being asked and therefore the best way to understand the phenomenon you're interested in. Yeah, that's extremely important. Yeah, as to whether or not we can use animal research to learn something about that question. And then also the consideration about proceeding as ethically as possible. You know, sometimes there is a, we have a, we have a problem and we have to throw somebody in a situation that could be dangerous. Is that somebody going to be an animal or a human? Mm -hmm. How do we uh, get that voluntarily as much as possible? You know, all the considerations around that. So just, I, you know, I'm curious to end, what's, what's your position on the, you know, animal, first of all, whether or not to use animals in animal research, and then um, what, can, what can we learn from them? So we mentioned him before that J.R. Cantor, right, he had talked about this logician of science. So it's someone that I assumed was kind of like the puppet master that was like looking at all the data that's out there and kind of organizing things and saying like, this is where we need to go. Yeah. And I like to think of that um, in ethics when it comes to this. I would say yes, comma, if we as a group in the situation we're in right now are continually looking at our ethics. And then I think over time, not only technology and like looking at these deeper dives, you'd mentioned earlier the degree to which some of these research studies were flawed or not, right? Mm -hmm. We, I feel like we don't have the greatest system set up. Like we have these people that like devote their whole life to like looking and undercovering like whether or not this research line was good or not. I feel like we need more, more resources and time kind of allocated over there. So that'd be kind of my model, like, yes, comma, but we need to make sure we have some resources allocated over this to the ethical considerations, as well as someone actually organizing this more and making it more publicly available. And I don't see why that would like that's that's part of one of my things. Like, I'm like, maybe that's like worth 20 years of my life to figure out how to set that up, you know, <laughs> wow. like it's not an yeah. easy thing to set up. But no, yeah. I'm thinking big data and like you could actually inform these sort of things, but we need to use technology. It's fair. OK, that's my position. How about you? Well, I mean, I think. One thing I have thought about over the years is that a lot of people would volunteer to participate in psychological research in a lot of circumstances, you know, if given the opportunity and in a non-coercive way, yeah, or I would be willing to participate in most psychological researches, research projects that I can think of. So it would be useful if the question pertains to human psychology to try and set up a system where we see if we can just recruit humans. It should probably be easier, honestly, mm -hmm. than trying to secure all the things that we need to um, to uh, to do those same kind of questions with, with animals. 
at the same time, like I do fully understand that there are so many benefits that can come from basic research that like, I want to say like, let's go ahead and keep that door open and yeah, be really, really careful about how we proceed in terms of how we are behaving ethically toward our participants and our employees and other things like that. Yeah. And then I guess the final consideration in there is that what can we learn from animal research? I don't, I don't know yet. Like it's, it depends on the kind of question you're asking. I think that animals get used to ask questions for which they even still in like all the time in modern research for which they are not good subjects to answer that question. Yep. They, you know, they don't really have a profile that, that matches the question. I totally agree. And at the same time, there are questions that like they will be perfect for answering. So I don't want to say we have to close the door completely, but like we need to be really, we need to be very strategic and um, be, uh, I guess, ethical. But, you know, what I mean by that is be considerate about the circumstances under which we choose to recruit involuntary subjects for research like this. Perfect. I agree. Cool. All right, man. Well, I think we have talked this one to death. We have. Yes. All right. So I'm ready to wrap it up. You have anything else? Nope. That's it. All We're right, good to go. Thanks perfect. for everyone uh, that's out there listening. This is Rano. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. <laughs>